Amen. Well, I'm glad that uh, Matt talked about 1109 prayer. You know, I came home from work yesterday, just haven't worked on this message for a while. And one of my daughter's friends was at our house and she said, Mr. Hendricks, Mr. Hendricks, she's doing the 1109 prayer. She's like, I was in Target and 1109 happened. I got the push on the app and I'm like, oh, good grief. And she said, I knelt in the aisle in Target and I pretended like I was looking at the toothpaste. And I thought, this is fantastic, right? It's great. She said, another time I was jogging, like I'm running, exercising in the neighborhood, and 1109 came. She said, I knelt in the middle of the road, and I prayed. I got a text message from Gary Kazem this week. Gary's a good friend. His family have been longtime members here. Uh, one of his girls actually is playing in our worship team this morning. Uh, but he sends me this text, and at first it was kind of cryptic. It just said something like, here's what happens when 1109 interrupts prayer time or story time with Nana. And Nana is his mom, and I'm thinking, what, what is he talking about? And then he sent me this picture, which I just think is precious. It's amazing. Listen, God is using this to bring us and everyone else to their knees. I think it was nice that in his providence and in his goodness, he had us hitting our knees before we even had to in some sense. Remarkable. Look, here's the deal, and it's our word for the day, okay? Okay. <laughs> We feel vulnerable. We do. So we're going to continue our study of the book of Ephesians today. And if you're just tuning in and maybe you're not familiar with the Bible, let me just tell you one thing about the Bible that it might be a little bit helpful for you to know. And that is the Bible is this great big book. I'm sure you've seen it. You probably have one. It's big. But it itself consists of 66 different books. And so typically what we do, not all the time, but usually, is we take one of those books at this church and then we sit down as a pastoral team and we sort of divide it up into sections and then we work our way through it week by week, section by section, from the beginning until the end. And there are great advantages to studying the Bible like that, not the least of which is that you you understand each individual piece far better if you know the whole. I mean, it's like a movie. You know, you can go to YouTube, you can pluck a scene out of a movie, and it's funny, and it's moving, and, you know, there are all kinds of things maybe that you can learn, and you make all these assumptions about the characters and what's going on and why the scene even happened that are just assumptions unless you watch the whole movie, and then you're like, oh, now I get it. That's who that person is. That's why this matters. That's what's going on. It's the same way with studying the Bible. You know, we make our way through it so that we can look at the whole story, and within the context of the story, we understand each individual part a lot better. But the disadvantage is that when you sit down with your pastoral team, as we did several months ago, and you map out a study of the book of Ephesians, for example, and you make it 12 weeks long, and you begin your study of it, and then in week like 10, you know, the world blows up, At the same time that you come in your study of the book of Ephesians to unquestionably the most controversial part of the book and also one of the most controversial statements to our 21st century ears, don't miss that, in the whole of the Bible that seems like it has nothing whatsoever to do, you know, with the particular cultural moment, which is a big one that you find yourself in. And so here's what I almost did. I, I, I looked at it, and I'm going, oh, my goodness, you know, maybe we should just take Ephesians and just push it back into the summer and like, guys, we're going to finish it, but we're just going to wait and we're going to get to it when we get to it. And today we're going to talk about anxiety or today we're going to talk about fearfulness because that's how we feel if we're honest. And then I dove into it and I thought, you know what? Actually, no, this is perfect. 
This is a perfect passage of Scripture for us today, and here's why. Because for all of the talk of submission, and you're going to hear a lot of that, he's going to talk about submission in marriage. He's going to talk about submission in parenting. He's going to talk about submission in terms of what we would call employer-employee relationships. For all of that, here's what Paul is doing. He's gathering together all of the powerful people in his culture in his day, first century, and he's putting them over here. And then he's gathering up all of the powerless people in his day, and he's putting them over here. And he's getting in between the two. And he speaks to both. Like he will give authentic instruction to the vulnerable. And he'll do it in each one of these three examples first. It's so disarming if you're powerful. Like if you're powerful, you're like, yeah, right on, you know. But who's the real audience? The real primary audience. He's speaking to these guys. It's authentic. But it's these guys that he's talking to primarily. He speaks to power. And it's revolutionary because he comes and he says, listen, Jesus is the all-powerful one. He is God. And yet he forsook his power. He laid it aside. He entered into this world. He used his power in some sense to become vulnerable, to take upon himself all of our vulnerabilities. He lays himself down in love and in service to us. He displaces us. He comes underneath us and he lifts us up. That's how Christ treats the vulnerable. And that's what Paul is going to say to the powerful. And listen, we are all of us in this moment surrounded by vulnerable people. And frankly, we're all, again, feeling Pretty vulnerable, like we feel vulnerable physically. Even the young are starting to feel vulnerable physically. We're all kind of waking up and kind of getting in touch once again with the fact that we are physical beings and that our physical bodies are subject to diseases and illnesses and accidents and viruses. We feel vulnerable. We're concerned. We're looking at our medical um, care you know, facilities, and we're going, man, if we can't flatten the curve, and then if I get this, am I going to be able to get the medical care that I need? I, I feel vulnerable. We feel vulnerable economically. It's pretty difficult to predict exactly how this thing is all going to play out economically, but it's not difficult to predict that it's going to be tough. How long or how short that's going to be, I don't know, but we're all kind of going, oh, man, like this changes things. I'm, I'm vulnerable. We feel vulnerable relationally. You know, we feel vulnerable with regard to our parents. Or maybe if you have grandparents, you're, you're worried about them. Or if you have kids, you're worried about them. Or if you have friends or people in your family or people that you work with who have compromised immunity systems, you're worried about them. If that's you, you're worried about you. But we feel vulnerable relationally. Many of us feel vulnerable relationally in terms of our own marriage relationship. Like there were a lot of marriages hanging by a thread, man, before the stress of this. And now this? Okay, so here's the deal. We feel vulnerable. And compared to what we were, you know, let's say a month ago, relatively speaking, we are more vulnerable. But compared to the people who were far and away more vulnerable than we are today a month ago, you know what side of the room you're on, right? You're over here. You're in the powerful category, and the message is for you. Paul comes to us in this really controversial passage, and we'll deal with that in a second, and he says, look, here's what I want you to do, powerful people. I want you to take your eyes off of you, and I want you to put them on the authentically vulnerable. 
And then after the fashion of Jesus, I want you to figure out how by the power of the Spirit and in community, even if it's virtual with other Christians, you can use your power to love and to serve, to place the interests of the vulnerable above your own and to lift them up. Not for the glory of you, but for the glory of Jesus. So Paul starts in Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 22. He makes the most controversial of statements when he says this. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Why? Well, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. And so then he concludes, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit. Wait for it. Here it comes. Oh, baby. In everything (laughs) to their husbands. A little bead of sweat. All right, so here's the deal. I don't need to stop in this moment and go, hey, you know, here's how this plays in our day. And if you, if you haven't figured out why this is controversial yet, let me explain this to you. We get that. <laughs> we understand that. Now, in fairness to Paul, here's what we haven't done. We haven't said, all right, well, let's define the term so we understand what he's saying. Like, what does it mean to submit? And, and what does it mean to be the head of another person? But nevertheless, we look at that part of what Paul's saying, and we understand that is massively controversial in our day. What we don't understand and what we now need to come to understand is how this played, and specifically what comes immediately after this played in Paul's day, because it was scandalous. It was massively controversial in Paul's day. Guys, here's the difference between today and then. In his day, the men were all over here. They had all the power. And the women had none. They had no power. Zero. They were arguably the most vulnerable people in that day and age. I don't know if you listen to our podcasts on Thursdays. If you don't, I'm going to encourage you to do it, particularly for the one that just came out this past Thursday. It's called Out of Water, and Sam Kastensmith, who's one of our pastors, and Mark Lautenschlager, who's our communications director, and one of our elders, do a phenomenal job of that. They deal with the same passage of Scripture that we then talk about on Sunday and that we work our way through in personal worship week by week. But I'm going to steal some material because I want you to see, if you've missed it, just how vulnerable women were in that day. So Aristotle, one of the greatest philosophers ever, a man who helped shape the Hellenistic culture in which Paul lived and all these people that he's writing to lived, said this about women, and if you're not seated, you might want to do that, okay? Just Because here we go. He said, the female is a female by virtue of a certain lack of qualities. We should regard the female nature as afflicted with a natural defectedness. Wow. You know, I read that as a guy who is married to a massively capable woman. You know, we've got four kids, three of them female, all of them brilliant. As I compare their natural defectedness to my own natural defectedness, I come up feeling pretty inferior. So like we hear a statement like that with our 21st century ears and we're like, ah, but you need to understand in the first century, that was the norm. Cato the Elder, the moralist of his day, said this. He said, woman is a violent and uncontrolled animal. I read that and I thought, well, maybe I'd be a violent and uncontrolled animal if you treated me this way too. Like I, I read these things and I think, man, I feel sorry for the women. That's, that's easy. That's obvious. But I feel sorry for the men because of the impoverishment of the society that they created in which they ignored and outrightly rejected the gifts, the talents, the abilities, the passions, and so forth of half their population. 
Plutarch, one of the greatest historians in the ancient world, said this. He said, a wife should have no feelings of her own, but share her husband's seriousness and sport his anxiety and his laughter. What is he saying? He's saying, well, in our day and age, wives have no identity outside of the identity of their husband. Their opinions don't matter, their ideas don't matter, their creativity doesn't matter, their passions don't matter, unless they happen to line up with their husband's ideas and opinions and creativity and passions, in which case, okay, they matter, but only in alignment with him. It's remarkable. Even in Greek mythology, you have the the myth of Prometheus. If you remember the story, he steals fire from the gods and he, he gives it to men, and he himself is punished, but there's another punishment. The punishment is the creation of woman who unleashes misery upon the earth. So you hear all that and you're like, all right, Tom, <laughs> I got it. It is infuriating. I, I understand that it is infuriating, but, but isn't Paul's statement also infuriating? I mean, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, you know? The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church and so forth. I mean, submit in everything. Like you even pause to make that as a, a point. That is the controversial statement in our day. But the controversial statement in Paul's day is what comes next. See, now he's talked to the vulnerable. And now he speaks to his primary audience, the powerful, about how to use their power. He says, husbands, love your wives how? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, I want you to try to imagine how that would have played in the first century. That that would have been absolutely stunning to these guys who were like, well, well, wait a minute. I mean, she exists to serve me. She has no identity outside of me. Like my ideas, my opinions, I'm the only one who matters here. She's just, she has no power. I have all power. What is Paul saying? He's saying, listen, guys, Jesus is the model for husbands in marriage and the relationship between Jesus and his bride, which is his church, everyone who has faith in him, okay, is the model for marriage itself. And what does Jesus say about himself? He says a lot of things, but one of the things that he says, just one of the things that he says that I think speaks to this whole idea is he says, listen, I'm God, okay? So let's just keep that in mind. And you are my creatures, my creation. But nevertheless, I did not come into the world to be served. I came into the world to serve, to in love lay myself down in service to and in honor of my bride to bring her up to care for the vulnerable, like at the expense of his life. And Paul doesn't stop there. It's like he's while he's got the floor and he's speaking to the powerful, he just pours it on. He just keeps going. He says that Jesus did all of this. Why? So that he might sanctify her, meaning who? His bride. Make it yourself. You. And what does that mean? It means that he might set you apart, set apart as precious, set apart as a treasure, set apart as holy, set apart as pure, set apart as beloved, having cleansed her, having cleansed you by the washing of water with the word so that he might what? So that he might ennoble you, so that he might beautify you, so that he might empower you, so that he might at the expense of his life put himself beneath you in some sense, subordinate his interests to yours and then lift you up, present 
Paul says, this is his language, the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she, the church, might be holy and without blemish. And then Paul looks at those husbands who in the first century held all the power, just like he looks at us today, and he says, guys, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, for he who loves his wife loves himself. Why is that? It's because Paul is thinking biblically about marriage. And one of the first things we learn about marriage on one of the first pages of the Bible is that when you get married, you form a new identity. It's not you and her anymore. It's the two of you together as one. The language is one flesh. He'll use the language here in a minute, and it's not just physical. It's your one, and that works its way out in all kinds of practical ways. I mean, you know, for example... I don't win as a husband if my wife, Beth, loses in the decision that we make. And she doesn't win if I lose. Like, we win and lose together. Why is that? Because we're not two people only. We have one identity. And neither seeks to dominate the other. That's why Paul can continue and he says, for no one ever hated his own flesh, meaning in this case, this other person that, you know, you have in marriage been made one with, but instead, what do you do with your own flesh in this case also being this other person that you are now one with? You nourish and cherish it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, Paul says, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery, he says, is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church, which means it's sacred. However, he says, let each one of you love his wife as himself, for she's one with you, and let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. And you say, all right, well, that helps. But, you know, I mean, we still haven't defined the terms. Like, we haven't talked about what it means to submit. We haven't talked about what it means for one person to be the head of another. You know, what if my husband's a jerk, Tom? I mean, I'm just going to say it. What if what if he wants to do X and I want to do Y because X is stupid? And it might be stupid. I mean, I can't tell you how many, how many different ways and, and how many different times Beth has saved me from doing something. You know, I mean, I can admit it. That was stupid. But I also can't give you one example, and I've been trying to come up with one this week, where I wanted to do X and she wanted to do Y, and and I just said, well, sorry, you know, because we're going to do X, and that's it. I don't win if she loses. We win and lose together. Look, if those are really your questions, then go listen to that podcast, because those are exactly the points that Sam and Mark brilliantly argue through. You'll love listening to it, and you will be instructed in all of those things. And I'm sending you there because in our particular moment, here's what I'm dealing with. I'm dealing with the big picture of this whole passage, which isn't just about husbands and wives, as we'll see in a minute. It's about the powerful, and it's about the powerless. And it's about how the powerful, after the fashion of Jesus, need in love and in service to the powerless, to the vulnerable, to lay their lives down in order to lift them up. 
And we know that because now he gives us example number two, children and parents. He says, children, they're the vulnerable ones. You get that, right? Obey your parents and the Lord. This is real instruction, okay? For this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, Paul says, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. He even attaches it to length of life. Now, what is he saying? He's going, I know it doesn't seem this way to you, but these people over here know more than you think. And you can learn all the lessons they've learned for yourself if you'd like, or you can learn from them, honor them, obey them, and your life will go so much better. It might even affect the length of your life. He speaks first to the vulnerable. But now he turns to the primary audience and he speaks to the fathers. Why why not the fathers and the mothers? Because remember, all the men had the power, guys. That's why. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. How? By by being overly protective, by being overly strict, by being overly harsh, by being overly lenient, by letting them do whatever they want, and therefore communicating to them that you don't care enough to deal with the pain that it is to deal with whatever they're doing, by showing favoritism, by neglecting them, by abusing them, like there's a whole long menu of options here. But the point that Paul's saying is don't in your power do that. Don't use your power abusively, if you will. Do not provoke your children to anger but instead put yourself beneath them and bring them up in the discipline and in the instruction of the Lord. Then he gives us a third example. He says bondservants. Well, what is a bondservant? Because we don't have those today. It's just a different word for slave. It's somebody who was owned by another person or owned by another family. Somebody who worked for them and served them for free. It was a part of a culture that We don't have a category for now, thankfully. But it was a reality in that day, and it's a reality that had a major discrepancy between vulnerable and powerful. And powerful is where Paul's going. That's where the message goes. But again, he starts with the vulnerable, and he says, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling and with a sincere heart. Do it authentically. Doing the will of God, he says, not by way of eye service, but as people pleasers, not insincerely, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord, not to man. And then looking to the Lord and not to man for your reward. He's like, I know you don't get a paycheck here, but there is one who's recording everything that you do, your work, your effort your attitude, and for forever will will recompense you, will compensate you. He says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. And now that he's done talking to them, he speaks to power. And he says, masters, do the same. Do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he... That is God, who is both their master and your master, is in heaven. And that there's no partiality with him. There's no Jew or Gentile. There's no slave or free. There's no man or woman. God doesn't value one more than the other. No one has more dignity, no more standing, no more nobility before him. He's like, just like I'm watching what they're doing, I'm watching what you're doing and how you're treating them. 
Use your power to lift them up. So in all this talk about submission, what Paul's really doing, the overarching story, the bigger point, is he's taking the powerful people and he's saying, stand here, and he's taking the vulnerable people and he's saying, stand here, and he's getting in between the two and saying, all right, so in light of Jesus, let's talk. And in particular, you powerful people, you belong to Christ. (laughs) There's no more powerful person than him. Look at what he did for you. He gave away literally everything so that you who had really in the final analysis nothing could by the gift of his grace receive everything through faith in him. So look at the vulnerable. Take your eyes off of you for a moment and ask yourself, how can I love these people? How can I serve these people? How can I put myself up underneath these people? And how can I lift them up? So with that in mind, if you are an emotionally powerful person, and you know who you are, if you are because you're just kind of unflappable and you're not at all freaked out by any of this and all the ups and downs of life somehow roll off you like water off a duck's back, we are all super jealous of you, by the way, like we want to be you, uh, and we need you. So that's kind of my point. If you're emotionally powerful, look for the emotionally vulnerable and pour into them, reach out to them, call them as Matt encouraged you to do. If you are economically powerful, and you may be feeling less powerful, again, than you were a month ago, understood, and we don't know how long it's going to last, also understood, and we don't know when it's going to end and how it's going to impact everything, I also get that, but there are people around you who were far and away more vulnerable a month ago than you are now, or you will be in six months, pretty much no matter what happens. So how can you love them? How can you serve them? How can you come up underneath them? If you're relationally powerful, your marriage is sound. Someone else's isn't. You know that. Technology. It's an amazing way to get together. And just to use Paul's last example, I understand we don't have slaves and masters today, praise Jesus, but we have employees and employers today. And if you're an employer... I would encourage you to be mindful of the vulnerability of your employees. And if you're an employee and you're now working from home and nobody's really supervising you, I would encourage you to be mindful of the vulnerability of your employers. And in both cases, to remember that there is one who is master of each in heaven and he is recording with the idea of reward how you treat each other, how you serve each other, how you give your best to each other, what you do in relationship with each other, okay? So I close with two questions, and then we'll just take a moment to pray. Question one, in what relationship or relationships are you just, you're holding all the cards, like you're the powerful one. And then secondly, how, in obedience to Jesus, can you use your power to love and to serve and to lift up somebody who is vulnerable? So let's work that through. Father, we thank you uh, that though we had nothing And though he had everything, in service to us, Christ came. Lord, in love for us, he entered into this planet. God, through a supernatural conception as a man for humanity, he became one of us. And he took his infinitely righteous and infinitely valuable life. And he said, I love you so much that even though you have blown it big, 
I will lay down my life to cover over your failures, to cover over your selfishness, your mistakes, all of it. That I might make you pure, that I might make you beautiful, that I might turn you into the treasured one of God, sanctified and set apart for meaning, for purpose. Lord, let the fullness of the gospel have the fullness of its effect in our hearts and minds. Let us be humbled by the reality that God so loved, he sent Jesus for us. And then let us manifest that. Let us manifest it in the way that we live. Lord, give us the power of the Spirit to take our eyes off of us for a minute and to place them on other people. Those who are more vulnerable than us than in one way or another. God, make us to be mindful of those people and create within us a love and a desire to serve them, a love and a desire to lay ourselves down in relationship with them, a love and a desire and, and even ways, Lord, as you inspire thoughts and ideas to come around them and to lift them up, not so that we can be celebrated, not so that we can be recognized. May we be forgotten and Jesus remembered. Let us show the world what the love of Christ looks like in a season of time in which we have the opportunity to do it all over the world. So take a moment, if you would, and just uh, confess to the Lord your fears and anxieties. <laughs> Like all of the self-protective instinct in you right now that makes you go, oh, crud, I wish I hadn't watched this. Confess those things to him and lay hold of the one who is your security. Ask him by faith to fill you with faith for this moment, with a vision not just of this world but of the next, with a perspective that says, you know what, this life is... Actually, it's really short and it's nothing compared to eternity. There's a place to live for. And it isn't here. We live for heaven here. And when we do, we bring heaven to earth. Just take a moment and, and speak to the Lord about that. Lord, we confess our sin knowing what your word says about it, that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us of, of the whole of it. That is a power we don't have, but we are so grateful that you do. We receive it. We rejoice in it. We experience the relief in it. We know the love in it. Draw near to us, your people, Lord. Meet us as we personally worship you. Meet us at 1109 as we pray. Meet us as we gather on Wednesdays and on Sundays. Lord, let us taste and see that you are good. And let us spread your goodness. Do these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.